0: This is Tech Transforms. I'm Carolyn Ford. Each week, Mark Sennell and I talk with top influencers to explore how the US government is harnessing the power of technology to solve complex challenges and improve our lives. Hello, thanks for joining us on Tech Transforms. I'm Carolyn Ford. This is my co-host, Mark Sinel. Hey, Mark.
1: Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Stan, Carolyn.
0: Yes, and we are joined this morning um, with retired four-star U.S. Army General Stanley McChrystal. Um, And we've had the pleasure of talking to General McChrystal on a few occasions. So, uh, but good morning, General McChrystal.
2: You and Mark call me Stan, and it's an honor to be with you again.
0: All right. We we will. Thank you very much. So let me let me give our audience for those that have been living under a rock, just a few more of your credentials. (laughs) So so, um, Stan is former commander of the U.S. and International Security Assistance Forces, ISAF, Afghanistan, and the former commander of the nation's premier military counterterrorism force, JSOC. He's best known for developing Developing and implementing a comprehensive counterinsurgency strategy in Afghanistan, and for creating a cohesive counterterrorism organization that revolutionized the interagency operating culture, and was—I think—is it fair to say—stand the basis for your book, Team of Teams?
2: It was certainly the foundation of it, and then our study beyond that.
0: Okay. So, honestly, Team of Teams. Just a little plug here. I think it is the best book on leadership that I have read. So for our audience, if you haven't read that one, do, do that. But we're here to talk about a new book out that will be out uh, this October that is also sure to be a bestseller. And Mark and I um, got to have a sneak peek. We got to read an early uh, copy of the manuscript. So we're here to talk about... Uh, your new book, Risk, A User's Guide. So with that, the way we wanted to kick this off is we would like you to just talk to us a little bit about the 10 risk control factors and the four measures um, that are the foundation for your new book, Risk.
2: Absolutely, Carolyn and Mark, thanks so much. We decided to take on risk as a subject because through my career, there had been processes to follow in calculating risk and, and acting on that to, to be able to measure the threats or risk to your organization. But it never connected with how we actually did it. Now, certainly there are some financial firms that use financial models that, that theoretically do this. But if you look at so many things in our lives there's one way we talk about risk and then there's another way we actually respond to it so i wanted to understand what the disconnect was and of course that had been my experience as well because in most cases in my career we had done checklists or matrices and calculations and come out with a a risk score but the reality was most of our reaction was intuitive and so we decided to study risk. And, and what we came away with was the idea that each organization, an individual actually, but organizations particularly, have something which I'll call a risk immune system. It's a system made consisting of 10 factors, such as communication, diversity, bias, timing. And those things interact together to determine the health of the system to respond to and prevent threats from from undermining the organization. It's very much akin to the human immune system. And if you're not familiar with it, the human immune system is a marvel. We face about 10,000 pathogens a day that come at our body and any one of which could harm us or kill us. But we don't think much about it. We don't have to because the body has got a process in which our immune system detects all the threats that come, assesses each one, responds, kills or fins off the ones that need to be, and then learns from the process. The miracle is it gets smarter. And that's the theory behind vaccines. You build up an immunity so that the next time it's very easy to fight off that known threat. So the the human immune system is this marvel that we sort of go through most of our lives taking for granted until it's compromised. And then it's compromised, like with HIV AIDS or another uh, assault on our system. And when it's weakened, suddenly we, we fall prey to threats that otherwise wouldn't be a problem for us. Really, nobody ever died of HIV AIDS itself. What they died with from was other lesser things that the body was unable to combat. So now we come back to organizations and it was interesting. We started to write this book and do the research and COVID arrived and it became almost a perfect example of what we were talking about. If we think about COVID-19, someone says, well, it was a black swan event who could know that a pandemic was coming. And the answer was everybody knew. Not only did everybody Yeah, we'd been through it before many times in, in history in the world, but particularly the Spanish flu, most notably in 1918, and in a smaller sense, many times since. In fact, in 2019, just a few months before COVID 19 arrived, the Department of Health and Human Services ran a series of exercises, and they were called Crimson Contagion. And they were based on a scenario of a viral threat, pathogen coming out of China, coming to the United States and going around the world and wreaking havoc. And the lessons from that set of exercises was the United States had not done enough preparation, had not stockpiled enough supplies, had not worked enough of the processes, and therefore paid a heavy cost. And that was only a few months before COVID-19 arrives. So the interesting thing about COVID-19 is We knew the threat was inevitable. You don't know the exact strain of the pathogen, but but you know that kind of assault's inevitable. And the second thing is, you know exactly what to do about it. Public health is not a new science. We knew the basics that we had to do. We had to stockpile things, we had to take certain steps. And of course, we pulled a rabbit out of a hat in terms of developing vaccines faster than any time in history. But except for that, the world's response to COVID-19 has been very weak. And it's been very weak because of many of the things of the risk immune system. I would argue the society's ability to communicate effectively, to make decisions on time, to overcome the inertia against inaction, to have the kind of leadership emerges that brings all capabilities together. And we literally stumbled on every one of them on COVID-19. And so it's a tremendous but, but sad example of just how important, because this wasn't a scientific failure. In fact, COVID-19 is a scientific triumph. It is a societal and governance failure in, in our analysis. Or
1: leadership, or leadership failure. If you look at the, your 10 dimensions of control, you know, exactly.
0: Yeah. And if we, sorry, go ahead.
1: I was just going to ask you, Stan, how how did you come up with the 10 dimensions
2: of control? Well, we decided to take a look at those things, which, uh, Were important factors and they were distinct or different enough to be categorized. You probably could have had twelve. You probably could have had eight if you put some together, but we there were some like bias and diversity. They were a little bit akin to each other. You know, if you have biases, you are the antidote is diversity, different perspectives. So, so they could be linked communication and narrative, but they're also distinct into themselves. And so we wanted readers to be able to understand these factors are all things which would be consciously addressed by an organization trying to to both be sure it has a healthy uh, um, risk immune system and then improving or strengthening it. Yeah.
0: Well, and you, so one of the risk factors control factors is technology, which I wanna focus in on since this is Tech Transforms. Okay. And you you start that chapter off technology with a quote that I loved this. So you said, technology raises a new question, who or what is in control? This is something that I think about almost every day and, and have since I was a kid watching Star Trek. Um, and so this got my head spinning about how do we ensure that technology is an advantage instead of a disadvantage? Who's in control? Is it helping the agencies that are using the technology within the government? Is it helping the citizens and war fighters that those agencies are serving? Um, and you... Well, let me stop there. And and can you talk about that? Like who is in control when it comes to technology?
2: Yeah, it's a great question, Carolyn. And the answer is it should be us. But if we go back in our history, the we refer to the movie Fail-Safe, an early 1960s movie in the book. And if anyone hasn't seen it, seen it, you ought to watch it. It's a story of a defensive system that has been implemented by the United States based on technology that allows the United States to essentially be able to strike the Soviet Union without being stopped. And it's got a defensive aspect to it so it can analyze whether there's a threat coming and then launch a counter threat. And of course it malfunctions. And it malfunctions in signaling that there is an attack and then it launches a counter strike. And of course, humans are not able to recall the counter-strike. So in the the desperately tragic final scene of the movie, the president of the United States works a deal with Soviet leaders that after the United States bombs Russia, which we cannot stop our plane from doing, we bomb New York City ourselves as a tit-for-tat to prevent further war. Now that question you say, my God, who's in charge? And the answer is because of the dependence upon very highly technical devices, they can get ahead of us. Now, if we, if we fast forward 60 years and we've got artificial intelligence and we've got things like hypervelocity missiles, we've now got response systems where you have to let the machine respond based upon inputs from its collection, there's not time to put a human in the loop. We always say, we well, always put a human in the loop if it's got anything to do with lethal effects. You can't do it and make it work. And so the reality is you either depend upon that or you have a much slower human system, which probably is not fast enough to deal with some of these threats. So we're building threats that make us dependent upon technology-based responses at a certain point the human's last touch of this thing is when we craft the system and if we get it wrong or if someone spoofs the system or corrupts it in some way there's tremendous vulnerability
1: i think of the movie war games in the 80s where they had the whopper and uh and uh, and they were simulating you know nuclear attacks you know that ominous
2: <laughs> It's terrifying, and we also refer in the book to some things that are more mundane, but they're pretty important. So for example, most companies have implemented automated voice or automated Mm -hmm. uh, telephone systems. So you call in to your favorite company, and they say, if your problem is X, dial one, or press one, if it's, and you sit through this thing and you get more and more frustrated, and you want somebody to fix your problem. And it's much, much cheaper for the firm to do. But how many times have you taken your business elsewhere? How many times do you just say, I give, I wanna talk to someone who will accept mm-hmm. my problem and fix it. And so that's a that's a hidden cost or a hidden risk that technology gives us that we're not even sure we can measure.
1: So-, so Do you? Th- oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, go ahead, Mark. Well, I, well, Stan, I was gonna ask, it seemed to me in reading through the book that the, that the way you laid out the 10 dimensions of control, um, you know, in the different use cases, um, is h- human, human analysis in decision-making, uh, et cetera, across that. The, the question I've got as it relates to technology and AI is have you ever thought, or is there possibility of taking the risk immune system and the, uh, 10 dimensions of control and applying that into artificial intelligence so that artificial intelligence can assist humans in this process move faster because the example you gave and and even in the book, a couple of examples, things start moving so fast. uh, You know, I wonder if if we're too slow in that
2: game and we can leverage AI for it. Mark, I think we are. I think the first thing AI could do for a system like that is tell us what we're not doing. Because if you think about it, a problem comes, a fire starts in your kitchen, and you're worried about getting your kids out first. You know, And an AI system could pull all the factors together and it could remind you. You would say, hey, wait a minute, you got this wrong, you haven't done this, et cetera. And as conditions change, AI with the right amount of detection out could bring that information in so that it could widen the aperture of the organization or individual making the decision and potentially respond more effectively. The problem is we as leaders will have to understand AI much better than we do right now because we are going to get instructions from artificial intelligence in the future. And we're not going to be able to have the time to dissect them or through our own processes, compete with that. We're either going to have to accept it or not. And it will say, do this and we're going to have to almost an act of faith because artificial intelligence can bring so many data sources together, draw a conclusion and make a recommendation. And we can't compete with that. So we're going to have to at a certain pace, take it as an article of faith. That means we really need to understand what our data sources are, how the system is, how the system works.
0: I think it takes us down a very scary rabbit hole too, where we've seen, you gave many examples in the book where arrogance, laziness, I don't know how you want to label it, but for whatever reasons, we just put our brains in the footlocker to quote one of my favorite quotes from your father. um, And, and we want somebody else to do the thinking for us. We want the technology to do the thinking for us, which is why we've heard many, many stories of people driving off the pier into the ocean because the GPS told them to. (laughs) So I just think the idea of like, can we get AI to the point of making all these decisions for us? It's a scary thought to me. I mean, it's the stuff that science fiction has been built on for the last 50 years, right?
2: You're exactly right. My wife and I were driving just last weekend and my pet peeve about most of the GPS systems is they drill in and they show you a very small area and then they you just turn right or turn left. And, it, you know, with my background from the military, I want to see the big map. I want to see where I am. I want to see the route it's chosen. I want to do that the whole way. And it it automatically doesn't want to do that. It just wants to tell you what to do. And they may be right and it may not be right. And that's the issue. Right. It's our challenge. And
0: yeah. And, you know, my dad, before we would go on any trip, he'd pull out the map and he'd make me look at it. And I'm like, ugh. I've got GPS. I don't need to do this. And you know what? Technology is awesome, and it gets me where I want to go. Until it doesn't. Until it doesn't. You know, single sign-on is awesome. Until it doesn't work. That's right. So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about inertia. So I love the. This is this is something that you bring up multiple times in the book, and I I'd like to read to you from your book, if that's okay. (laughs) So, um, you said in my physics class at West point, we learned that in the most basic terms, inertia tells us that absent external forces, forces that absent, absent external forces, things will keep doing whatever they're doing. That's true. Not only if what they're doing is brilliant and successful, but also if what they're up to is silly and destined for failure. An oft used military axiom is never interrupt your enemy when they're making a mistake, but shouldn't we interrupt ourselves? My question for you is, do you think that we are allowing tech to move us forward from momentum rather than deciding our own direction?
2: I think potentially it can. Of course, we prove it in history. We didn't need tech to do that either. We could, we could make all those <laughs> <things> mistakes. <laughs> the problem with tech is it can reinforce that. You know, mm-hmm. we build processes, we do things a certain way, and we do them to be more efficient with technology. And to a certain degree, an operator of a machine or a computer does certain things, gets certain guidance or responses. And... We think we're not smart enough to say no. We shouldn't do that right now. And often we give people instructions in their position. No, this is what you follow. This is the process. If it if it comes in, if they say two plus two equals five. You use five and and move on. So the problem is really sociological. It's it's our leadership and the human side but it is aided and abetted by technology. It's easier to go faster, further and get it way off track. There's a great story just on the news recently about uh, a high frequency trading company. And it was some years back when it happened, but they, one of their algorithms got off in the course of like 40 minutes, they lost billions of dollars. And it was because a small problem in a very high speed system jumped the track and boom, you know, that can happen in our economy. It can happen in almost anything.
0: Yeah. And back to what you were talking about with um, just leveraging tech. One of the things you also say in the book, I, I, I assume this was early, like two, 2003-ish, when you were first kind of reorganizing the way uh, JSOC operated. But um, you said that, the tech and the hardware, you were able to have communications, which is another one of the risk factors. Um, You were able to have communications all over the world, cross teams because of technology. And you said that the technology was just as important as food and ammo. And that's, as I read the book, I kept thinking all of these things are interconnected and they rely on each other. And even as we're developing tech, it would be, Prudent, and we should be applying this model to the development of the technology.
2: Absolutely. I, I throw out a couple ideas. What would have happened a year and a half ago as COVID 19 sent us home, dispersed us, if we didn't have the level of technology that we enjoyed at that point? If, let's say, yes. we didn't have the internet and whatnot, let's say we didn't have telephones literally society at the size and interconnected would have stopped. And so our Achilles heel at that point became our ability to communicate because it built our confidence. If we weren't being communicated with all the time, we would have literally most of us would have panicked in some way and society would likely have done that as well. We we learned something very interesting in JSOC. And I'm not sure we're the first people to learn it, but of course it became really clear to me that as we were dispersed and we had to implement a lot more technology than ever just to communicate that that was only the first step the first step was the technical part of it and in the book we talk about four tests and the first one was can you physically communicate can you send and receive a message but that's not that doesn't solve the problem because the next one is will you Will you pick up the phone? Will you share the information that you have? And if you won't, then having the ability to do it becomes not very important. And then the third one is, is the information accurate? Are you passing information that, in fact, is helpful? Or in some cases, it's incomplete or misinformation, in which case it's actively negative and then the final one, does the recipient have the ability to receive it? Not just the technical ability, but can they understand it? Are you sending it in one language and they, they understand another? Uh, do they not have the context of the wider situation so that your information matters? And so when we think about communication, we have to think much more holistically. And absent effective communication, individuals can't operate effectively. You know, they can't make decisions, they can't show initiative, they can't show agility, which we all celebrate so much.
0: So right. I have a question. Of I want to ask about the you, you put the risk control factors in a circle. You have communication off to the side. So it is one of the factors, but it's off to the side. Why Why did you draw it that way?
2: We probably didn't draw it clearly enough. What we intend is communication to the side, but it is the line connecting all the factors. So okay. some communication that the strength of the other factors is is much less effective. So it ties them together. And then, of course, leadership at the center, because mm. it leverages them all.
1: Are, are you guys talking to organizations about the risk immune system now? Because it sure seems like there's an opportunity there. <laughs>
2: That's great task, Mark. We are. We just started doing that. We spent, you know, about a year and a half researching and writing the book and, and coming up with this particular analogy. And then as we talk to organizations, most organizations have some processes for risk. Some have a chief risk officer. Some have a, you know, almost a mathematical like process. And what we found is that doesn't serve them well against the real risks that come at companies. There's been a number of uh, articles written on this, but if you bring a bunch of CEOs together and you ask them what the greatest threats to their corporate company are, typically they will list, let's say 10 threats and they're all external. Their market changes, their competition, their things like that. And yet when you look why companies falter or fail, they're almost all internal. You know, they didn't communicate with state leadership, that sort of thing. And so we tend to automatically look for the meteor that's coming to hit earth, when in reality, we are not functioning internally. That's our biggest problem. And the thesis of the book is there's not much point in spending too much time worried about external threats. When you have the greatest agency over things internal, you can make yourself much more resilient.
1: No, I picked that up. Yeah. With uh, the 10 dimensions of control, you have the ability to impact and turn the knobs to uh, mitigate that risk.
0: And I I thought of that a lot, just the whole um, we defeat ourselves, really. So we can list all of these external threats. But the truth is it defeat comes from within. Right. Um, Go ahead.
2: No, exactly. I couldn't agree more.
0: So one of the things that you state in the book is you say that often things don't change because it is not in the interest of those in charge. And one of the examples you cite is um, the difference in uh, economic needs between the North and the South and how that influenced the way things went with slavery. And I was thinking about that in our world today. So you also bring up Greta Thunberg, Thunberg, So these are Swedish teenage climate activists who I I think is great by the way. But I, I just think about like all the advances we have in technology today and why haven't we figured out how to solve some of these hard problems. And I couldn't help but ask myself, is it, because it's not in the interest of those who are in charge, um, what do you think about that?
2: Well, absolutely. I think first, there are very clear cases. If you go back to what happened to streetcars. When we first came to Washington, D.C., when I was a very young boy, there were streetcars. And they got bought up and, and thrown away. Not because they were bad, but because, in fact, a number of oil and gas companies did that so that they could take away that kind so it would increase the number of motor vehicles which were petroleum-run. And you say, that sounds like a big plot. The reality, that was in their interest to do that. It was in their interest to increase the dependence on motor vehicles. So it was a rational act. It sounds evil now. In the moment, they probably in the boardroom didn't, didn't think of themselves as evil. I think if we think of stakeholders like that, there are always big tobacco argues against the validity of cancer research because it's in their interest to at least question it. And you can rationalize to yourself something if it's in your interest, like we describe in the book. I don't think that everybody who lived south of the Mason-Dixon land, uh, line before 1860 automatically thought that slavery was a good idea. But they were certainly... Uh, incentivized to come to that conclusion because their economic model was built on that. And so what we've got to watch is as we have incentives for certain people, the danger is we will do things that are illogical or dangerous. Then we've got leaders who aren't directly incentivized but they're incentivized by something else, political leaders who are incentivized by popularity. Or if things are going pretty good, you've got a corporate leader who's incentivized by the the status quo. And even though the organization is heading in an unsustainable direction, it may be good enough for that leader for their tenure. And they don't automatically get in a room and say, yeah, I'm going to leave the burning platform right before it burns. But they can rationalize to themselves Hey, things are going pretty good. I shouldn't rock the boat. And so we've got to watch that in ourselves because we can be as guilty of those things of coming to a bad conclusion because our incentives or or our biases take us there.
1: And and when you think about it, you see it every day. Every day, yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I need to take the diagram. I'm going to take the diagram and paste it on my wall to remind myself that I'm making choices I mean, I have these biases and I also, you, you talk about diversity. It's one of the factors as well. Um, and as I read the chapter, I thought about how important diversity is in tech creation and development. And can you talk about that a little bit? Just, if we don't have diversity in the development, like what's going to happen?
2: Absolutely. You know, first off, when we took on diversity, it sounds like, okay, politically correct, add diversity, just to show you (laughs) open minded. Not at all. In the counterterrorist force uh, that I took over in 2003, when we started, we were not very diverse at all. We were typically middle aged white men who'd grown up in these elite forces. But we found out that that was not as effective as we needed to be. In the heat of a, of a war we thought we were going to lose, we had to become a meritocracy because the person who could perform best. And surprise, surprise, we got older people, we got different genders, we got all these different things because they could produce. And the organization accepted that, not consciously, but unconsciously because it worked. And then after the fact, we pat ourselves on the back for being you know, broad-minded and diverse. <laughs> when in reality, we were very efficiency-focused. But that brings us to uh, how we think about diversity. It's not a right. That's not the way we look at it in the book. We don't do diversity because it's a good thing to do in terms of justice for everyone, although it is. It's a good thing to do because you get the differing perspectives you need. In the development of technology, if you develop something all with one kind of people, all with one gender, one race, one age, one background, you're going to get a single-threaded outcome. And that single-threaded outcome is very rarely going to be broad enough in the marketplace to be effective, or in the case of, let's say, a defense system. If I built a defense system that defends against people like me, that's great, but the average number of people in the world like now aren't like me. You know, my dem- uh, demographic is significant in the U.S., but it's not pervasive around the world. So the reality is, if I don't think about what those threats are going to be from all different things or what assistance we can get, then I, I got huge holes in it. And so diversity is something that that fills blind spots.
0: I love the examples that you give throughout history, Bay of Pigs, having different maps. Um, it, it's it's your favorite run, right? The What's the run that you do?
2: I do a run in Old Town where I go up Braddock's uh, yes. road. And they've even, they've even got a cannon from Braddock's command mounted there in like 1915, and uh, And yet most people drive by it. Most people, if you said Braddock Road, they wouldn't have an idea who Edward Braddock was. But it was a classic case of a lack of perspective because an unwillingness to have a diverse set of inputs, a certain bias, and then I would also er argue that inertia too. He had been raised a certain way. The British Army operated a certain way. So it was moving in a constant speed and direction as an entity, And it was very hard for him to break that inertial momentum. He was going to fight the way he had been raised to fight. And it was just inappropriate uh, for the situation.
0: Well, and I loved how you talked about like over in in the UK, they had one map. He had a different map. His buddy over here had everybody had a different map. If they would have maybe put those maps together, (laughs) it would have been a very different outcome, right?
2: That's true. And, and you don't have to go to the UK to do that. If you look at <laughs> the State Department, the Central Intelligence Agency, yes. we divide the world differently. So if you said, bring me the people who are responsible for this area, it, they aren't the same. And so that is so basic. Why would we divide the world regionally differently? Because it makes all kind of coordination more complicated. And yet we do and we tolerate it.
0: Yeah, so we're coming up on time, Mark. Do you have, do you have any last questions before we go to our tech talk questions?
1: No, no. This has been very uh, enlightening and a good preview to the book. So I'm sure you, uh, everyone out there is going to really enjoy it, Stan. You're yeah. kind. Yeah.
0: So we want to end with a set of questions. We call them tech talk, and this is totally just meant to be answered, kind of in quick. Sh- responses, but take as much time as you want. (laughs) So the first question is, what do you think the next big leap in technology will be?
2: I think it's going to be artificial intelligence based, and it's going to start to make decisions for us. And we are going to have to decide how we deal with it. So for example, do I want to buy a certain product? And instead of doing comparative shopping, you're just going to say, I want to buy a car and it's going to know you. And it's going to know cards that say, buy this car. And we're going to have to decide if that's what we're going to do, because we didn't develop the software. We don't know the AI. And so, but I think there are a lot of things that are trending us that way already, hotel selection and flights. I think, gonna take, make it easy, it's gonna be in the realm of convenience.
0: Yeah, Google's CEO just said that AI is in the same category as the invention of fire.
2: And so it, could burn it up.
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like as you're saying that I'm like, okay, but I have the tendency to keep my brain in the footlocker. And if I have AI making all the decisions, I'm gonna like default to that. So, okay, Um, next question is podcasts, TV, books, movies. What is inspiring you these days when it comes to technology?
2: Yeah, I I think podcasts and not just because we're doing one now, but because it's the closest thing to the old long form journalism. Mm -hmm. You know, most of the things you see are little snippets and they tend to be videos of Congressman X saying something. And there's not really much analysis and the ability in a podcast is to take a question and to have at least more than one perspective put on it. And so I think this is probably the most powerful medium, but people have got to have the discipline to listen to them.
0: Yeah. All right. What technology do you use the most in your daily life?
2: Um, Without a doubt, you know, my computer, I've got a company Carolyn, you know, it very well. Uh, we've got about 100 people. We connect every day through a video teleconference, everyone in the company. We use Teams. You know, there are a lot of similar things. We use text. So I live on it. And so if I think about it, if you took this away, the ability for me to communicate this way, uh, our ability to, to function as an organization would be hindered critically. I mean, we couldn't operate. And we are probably representative of a tremendous number of organizations now. So I am, you know, pitifully dependent upon it. And so the better it works, the better I am when it does and I got problems.
0: Yeah, and coming back to your point of communication being that line that ties it all together. Yeah. All right, last question. What is on your technology wish list?
2: That's a great question. I mean, I'm going to spread the technology. I think transportation is the thing that has improved least in in technologically in our world. And I talk about it. If you want to go somewhere now, let's say three hours away, it took you three hours in 1960. It takes you three hours right now. If you fly across the country, it took six hours in 1960. It takes six hours now. The fact that I go to New York City fairly often and, and our trains are abysmal, uh is ridiculous if we could focus on technology and there's some you know small electric uh vehicles some vertical takeoff some others that could change it dramatically but right now we can't get ourselves or things places nearly as efficiently or as quickly as we ought to be able to and we ought to be able to break through this part of its airspace management i mean there are stakeholders and there are are things that are holding back technology and we've got to break through that because that would be another leap ahead for the American economy and society, just like building the interstate highway system was in the 1950s. The Chinese just
1: announced uh, a high-speed train uh, this week. It goes almost
2: 400 miles per hour. Because they can, and it gets to the thesis of the book, our system in the United States right now isn't functioning. We can't make decisions. We can't make a decision to make a train or not make a train. What we do is we argue about it and then we don't make a decision. And and either decision would be OK, but we can't get to that. And so yeah. I don't love their political system, for, but for those kinds of things, it works. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But I don't want to train. I want you to beam me up, Mark.
2: Well,
1: <laughs> I mean, that, that could be coming. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, Stan, for taking time to talk to us today about your new book. It's been a pleasure as always.
2: Thank you, Stan. Carolyn, my honor. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah. And I want to thank our listeners. And I want to tell our listeners, Mark, the first 25 to let us know that they've listened to this episode, we're giving them their own copy of Risk as soon as it's out in October. So share us, like us, let us know that you're listening and we will talk to you next week. Thanks for joining Tech Transforms. Please post a review, share this episode and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.